from WDEV in Waterbury, welcome to Vermont Viewpoint. I'm Kevin Ellis. Thanks for joining us. On this Friday, February 16th, we are glad to have you along for our regular uh, week in review, all things politics and culture in Vermont and uh, the top stories. We have a treat for you in store this hour as we talk to two young Vermonters, winner of a Youth Leadership Award named in honor of the late congressman and former civil rights leader, John Lewis. I'm going to talk about Lewis in a few minutes with some memories as part of our observation of Black History Month. Uh, and then we'll talk to those uh, young students uh, in the first hour. At 10 a.m., our regular expert on all things Washington, Bob Ney, and there's a lot going on. The House Intelligence Committee chair seems to think it's okay to uh, reveal the existence of Russian anti-satellite uh, technology. We'll get into that with Bob. Uh, at 10.15, we'll talk to Seven Days reporter Derek Brower about his story about Decker Towers, which is uh, that senior housing uh, high-rise on St. Paul Street in Burlington, which seems to have been taken over by folks who do not live there uh drug dealers, uh, criminal element, et cetera. And uh, the residents are trying to organize to take the building back. And uh, Mayor Murrow Weinberger's involved, the police are involved, and Derek has the whole story. That's at 10.15. And at 10.30, our friend John Snell, uh, who is, among many other things, a photographer uh, in uh, Montpelier, and we'll talk to him about his uh, new show, which starts tomorrow at the Highland Center for the Arts up in Greensboro. Uh, you can hear us, all of that, and you can hear me on AM 550 and our various FM stations, not to mention our podcast, which comes out, as I like to say, magically on the website uh, shortly after the show. We welcome your calls and emails. The number to call is 244-1777. Send your emails to Viewpoint at RadioVermont.com. I can think of no better way to discuss Black History Month than to think about the late John Lewis. Most people know Lewis as a former member of Congress from Georgia and a leader of the Civil Rights Movement, the chairman of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, and one of the main speakers at the famous March on Washington in 1963. That should be enough. But Lewis was so much more, so much deeper than even all that. On a personal note, I knew Lewis. As a young journalist, I interviewed him several times, and when he came to Congress, I met him at various events, usually marking his role in history. I would uh, get to know him fairly well. There are, there are two people who, when they walk in a room, the place grows quiet in a kind of spiritual way. One is the Dalai Lama, who I watched and interviewed as a young reporter at the Burlington Free Press in the 90s when the Dalai Lama came to Middlebury College in the 90s. And the second, of course, was John Lewis. When John Lewis walked into a room, the room went quiet. It, it just seemed like everyone put on hold what was important to them because they knew that they were in the presence of history of someone who had put his life on the line for the most basic of human rights, uh, the right to vote. With the Dalai Lama, the quiet comes from 
a religious kind of spiritual place put upon him by that culture and that history and also personified by his wit, his brilliance and charm. With Lewis, that quiet and sacredness was hard-earned at the end of a billy club, at the end of the worst dark side of America in the southern part of the country, most notably Alabama, which was Lewis's birthplace, in the small city of Selma. And of course, on a day we now know as Bloody Sunday, on a small bridge there in 1965. It is called today the Edmund Pettus Bridge. And incredibly, it is named after a fellow named Edmund Pettus, a former Confederate Brigadier General, a U.S. Senator, and a Grand Dragon of the Alabama Ku Klux Klan. And it was on that bridge on March 7th, 1965, where John Lewis, along with hundreds of civil rights marchers, was attacked by the Alabama state and local police on horseback. They used tear gas, billy clubs, and dogs to stop Lewis and his followers from reaching the capital of Montgomery, Alabama, to demand the right to vote. They fractured Lewis's skull and left him for dead. Public reaction was swift, due in large part to the abundance of images that documented Bloody Sunday on television. Americans witnessed it right up close. And a week later, speaking to a joint session of Congress, Lyndon Johnson, then the president, uh, addressing a joint session of Congress, as I say, and 70 million Americans watching on TV, gave a speech that was the highlight of his presidential career. There is no Negro problem, he said, using the vernacular of back in the day. There is no Southern problem. There is no Northern problem. There is only an American problem. This from a president who came from Texas and overcame later in his career, uh, that much of that, uh, that uh, racist upbringing. What happened in Selma, Johnson said, is part of a larger movement which reaches into every section and every state of America. It is the effort of American Negroes to secure for themselves the full blessing of American life. Their cause must be our cause too. But it is not just Negroes. But really, it is all of us who must overcome the crippling legacy of bigotry and injustice, and we shall overcome. Within 24 hours, the White House was deluged with 1,436 telegrams in support of Johnson's stance, with only 82 telegrams against. And on, on August 6th, just a few months later, in 1965, President Johnson signed the Voting Rights Act into law with civil rights leaders like Martin Luther King and congressional proponents alongside him, including a very young John Lewis. In his wake, John Lewis met, left many legacies. His biggest may have been the 1965 Voting Rights Act, but another one, not as famous, is the John Lewis Leadership, Youth Leadership Award, which was given in, in many states in this country last week to young leaders around issues of democracy and voting. We'll be back to discuss that award with our next guest after the break. Welcome back. I'm Kevin Ellis, and it's Vermont Viewpoint. Uh, thanks for joining us for our Friday show. 
as I said earlier, the John Lewis Youth Leadership Award was established in 2021 by the National Association of Secretaries of State. The award honors the extraordinary accomplishments of Congressman John Lewis, about which I just explained. Uh, Last week, Vermont Secretary of State Sarah Copeland-Hansis awarded two Vermont young leaders with the award. It recognizes uh, those 25 years or younger who have demonstrated leadership abilities, a, a passion for social justice, and are motivated to improve the quality of life in their community. We have two of those two award winners with us, uh, but before we go to them, I want to welcome Secretary of State Copeland Hansis to the show so she can tell us a little bit more about the award. Uh, Ma- Madam Secretary, welcome. Thanks for having me, Kevin. It's good to be with you on a snowy morning. Well, I'm, we're going to get to uh, the student leaders in just a second, but tell us a little bit about this award and the kind of fun you had uh, giving it out. Well, the John Lewis Award is a relatively new award um, given by members of the National Association of Secretaries of State. And when we were in D.C. last week, we got to see a presentation uh, that included profiles of all of the student leaders from across uh, the country who had been nominated by their uh, respective secretaries. And and I got to tell you, it was really inspiring. Um, you know, I, I don't think that most young people in Vermont understand the power that they have to make change uh, simply by organizing and, uh, and, and putting a little effort into it. But Addie and Chris uh, are both um, really outstanding examples of what young people can do to lead and make change and make the world a better place um, by leaning into uh, their power. Well, and, and you would, uh, and we have those two young leaders with us right now, and I'm going to introduce them. Addie Lenzer is the founder and executive director of the Vermont Student Anti-Racism Network and senior fellow for Our Turn, a youth-led educational equity movement and a student at Middlebury College. And we also have with us Chris Alfano, the founder of Civically, a smartphone app that provides free, engaging, high-quality civics education. He's a student at Burr and Burton Academy in Manchester. Welcome to you both, Addie and Chris. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thank you so much. Okay, now I've got a little housekeeping to do. I know uh, Secretary Copeland Hansis is really busy and might need to jump off. Uh, feel free to stay with us, Sarah, as long as you like. And I know Addie uh, has a class or some commitment to get to. So I, I just want to start with Addie. Um, Addie, tell us what it was like to get the award. Well, it was definitely a surprise. Uh, we. I was expecting to go to to GNAT to do like a show on civic engagement with the Secretary of State, and then um, and then it turns out that Chris and I got these awards. So it was really a powerful moment um, to recognize that youth in Vermont and also around the country are doing this work and making change, and that we're being recognized by someone like the Secretary of State, that was just a really huge honor. So it was really um, powerful and it meant a lot to me. And uh, Chris Alfano, tell us just a little bit about Civically and this smartphone app. 
Yeah, so Civically is an app that's meant to really make it super easy and simple for people to learn mainly about founding documents and just the foundations of democracy here in America. So I noticed as a high schooler that, um, especially for young people, but also for adults as well, um, you know, the 17th, 18th century language of the documents that really make up the foundation of our country, it's not very easy to read or understand, right? There's lots of, you know, flowery language. And so I wanted to, to make something that could make it much easier for people to understand. So I sort of combed through a bunch of different documents like the Constitution and the Declaration and translated it into summaries. And then with that, I made a bunch of different um, practice questions and practice quizzes that people could complete. So it's really meant to gamify the experience and make it fun and easy to learn instead of a, a burden. Uh, Madam Secretary, I, I, when I hear the word gamify and the, sec- and the Declaration <laughs> of Independence in the same sentence, my, my old person uh, instincts kick in. But this is where we're headed. Uh, we've got to make the we've got to make democracy uh, make sense in simple language for people, I think. And you spent much of your career in the legislature trying to do just that. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, you know, I think in order to make government accessible, um, you need you need to make sure that people understand how to do democracy. Right. And so, you know, helping people uh, understand how to engage um, and and where the levers of power are for whatever problem they see that they want to solve is really important and and that's why uh, gamifying um, in the civically app it makes so much sense um, and you know it's also why I think um, the organization that Addie helped found is uh, is so powerful for young people because it gives students from across the state, um, an opportunity to come together to learn and engage and indeed make change um, that they maybe wouldn't otherwise have known how to do. And Addie, uh, if you would, please tell us, what is the Vermont Student Anti-Racism Network? Yeah, so we are a nonprofit. We're completely run by students. So um, we like um, our whole staff is students and our board is mostly students and we our mission is to uh, achieve education without without racism through education about racism so we really saw a need in Vermont to educate students about the reality of racism and inequality because we weren't learning it in our schools and like to to the point of we need to be civically engaged and we need to be part of this democracy. Well, we can't be part of this democracy if we don't know the truth of our history. So what we decided to do is start this nonprofit where we go around and read books to kids about racism. We also do presentations in schools about racism and the history and psychology of racism and microaggressions. And we also write legislation. We're currently working on a bill that is in the state house. So we have kind of a lot of different tactics to try to engage students on anti-racism so that ultimately we can all be part of this democracy and make it better for all of us. And then if you would, tell us about uh, Our Turn, which I, I see is a, a movement. Uh, that's the way it's described, but tell us more about it. Definitely, yeah. So our term is also a nonprofit, but it's a national nonprofit, and it works to 
really elevate youth voice in the fight for education justice. So what we believe is that obviously there are a lot of inequities in the education system from racism to economic inequality to the curriculum we learn to like standardized testing and all of these different things. So what our turn tries to do is um, mobilize young people to make change. So I work with our turn and with the CEO and we do thought leadership and reports and we also organize students around campaigns uh, and we also work with a lot of partners um, that do education justice work and try to bring student voice into those conversations so that students can be part of making the change. Uh, and Addie, what what led you to do this? Um, there's a lot of folks, students at Middlebury and colleges around the country that have got a lot uh, of other things on their plate. What led you to start the anti-racism network? You're, you've got a busy life going to class and just surviving college. Uh, how did you get to that point? Well, it was something I was really passionate about. I, I saw an issue in the world and it was something that I felt like I couldn't just sit with. Um, especially, you know, as a high schooler, seeing these issues in my own school and affecting students around me, um, I really felt like if nobody does this, then like if students don't do this, we're not going to make the change. So that's what really inspired me. And also, I think once I got going into this work, seeing other students step up and do the work too and be part of the community together really inspired me and kind of keeps me going just to see that we're not alone. We're in this together. And even though we all have busy lives, if we all contribute a little bit, we can make the change we want to see. And uh, Secretary Copeland hands us, uh, there are, this, this is an increasingly, in our tribal politics, uh, these subjects get increasingly controversial uh, with uh, us divided not so much in Vermont, but around the country about around when these issues of of uh, anti-racism and voting rights and other things are into the college educational system. There's a there's a another tribe out there that's saying it's turning our educational uh, institutions into woke uh, uh, places uh, where nobody can really speak freely anymore. Can you address that? Well, you know, I think that turning to youth, um, turning to our young people uh, to to look for how to get beyond this um, factionalism is is really what we need to do. You know, young people were not born um, despising or distrusting or hating other people. Um, these are unfortunately uh, things that society teaches them. And uh, and that's why I think it's so inspiring when we see young people who want to dive in and, and help their elders, their parents, their grandparents, all of us, um, see that we should try a different way forward, um, whether it's through you know, education and gamifying the Bill of Rights so that more people can understand that you have the right to petition your government to make the change that you can't do on your own, or whether it's, you know, challenging your your school organization to teach in a different way so that, 
young people are uh, understanding the true history of our nation. Um, it's really inspiring. Patty, how do you balance um, your your the rest of your academic life with your community work and your anti-racism work? <laughs> That's definitely a good question. Um, I think uh, I am studying sociology, and a lot of the academic work that I do relates to the social justice, like community organizing that I do. So I kind of see them as interrelated in a way, if that makes sense. Um, So I sort of, yeah, just uh, make sure to balance everything, but also take time to relax because I think that that is really important too, um, or else you're going to get burnt out. So it's kind of a difficult balance of everything. Okay. So we are going to take our first, uh, well, our second break of the show, and we are going to let Addie Linzer go because I know you've either got to get to class. Well, why don't you tell us what's, uh, you've got something coming up in five minutes. Can you tell us what it is? Yeah, it's it's a class. It's uh, American public policy class. There you go. (laughs) Well, we better, we better let you get to it. And then, uh, and we're going to, if, if Secretary Hansis, Copeland Hansis wants to stick around, you're welcome to. Chris, I got to ask you, uh, you got to take us through from step one. Uh, let's, how do we download the app and, uh, how do we get going? Start us there. Yeah. So the app, it's free to download. Um, you can get it on any iPhone or iPad and some Macs. Unfortunately, it's not available on Android devices yet. And all you have to do to download it is go to civicallyapp.org slash download, and that will take you to the page, and you can immediately just jump in and get started. And what's the goal, again, of the app? Yeah, so um, I'm a senior now at Burn Burton in Manchester, as you said, and when I was a freshman, the insurrection on January 6th took place, and that was really just a wake up moment for me to start seeing all these different issues that are, are prevalent in our democracy. And I guess growing up, we're taught in America to see our country as this paragon of democracy for the rest of the world. And I believe that, you know, we are, and we can continue to be this, this beacon of hope, but to do that, we really have to invest in our democracy and, and take, take care of it because it's not something to, that can be, taken for granted, as we've seen, especially in the past couple of years. So the app really just tries to get back to the fundamentals of democracy and the basic ideas and principles that were laid forth by our founders over 200 years ago. So um, as I said earlier, I sort of dug into the founding documents. I tried to make easy to read summaries so that you could just get straight to the, the important information and cut out the fluff. And then from there, I made some some different practice questions so that people can have a more fun experience as opposed to just reading a textbook or combing through the documents themselves. Uh, did you just do this on your own, Chris? Did you get help from uh, teachers at Burn Burton? What uh, what went into creating the app? Yeah, so we have a two-man team. So it's me. I'm responsible for all these different content areas. And my older brother, who is a uh, software developer, so he did most of the you know, actual development of the app on the tech side while I worked on the content. Um, I did consult with a few teachers at Burn Burton during the, the process just to say, 
you know, like I have this concept, I have this idea. Do you think this, you know, could be viable and sort of refine the, the product from there to, to get our final version. Tell us about getting the award, uh, the John Lewis award. Did you, did you know who John Lewis was before you got the award or have you learned about him since? I did, yeah. So I was actually very fortunate to hear Congressman Lewis speak, um, I think in 2018, up at the Flynn Center in Burlington. Um, it was a middle school field trip, and we read his book March prior to the to the visit. So he was speaking on that book, which I highly, highly recommend. It's a graphic novel. It's an easy read, but it contains a lot of his uh, firsthand recounts of the different events from his life that you were talking about earlier. Um so, yeah, it's obviously very inspiring to hear from, from him, a prominent leader in the civil rights movement. And his core message, I guess, um, is just that we're one people, right? We're one people as a country, but ultimately we're one people as a species, the human race. And I think that's something that really resonated with me, especially seeing all the different divisions that seem to be ex- exacerbating in 2024 in the United States, whether they be political, racial, or anything else. Chris, I wonder we're we're debating in this country everywhere the you know uh, secondary education, uh, college education, and, and whether it's working or not for students like you. How does it go for you at Burn Burton Academy? You know, you've got you're developing a, a civics app on the one hand in your extra time, and then you're going to class. Do the two do the does your classroom experience blend with the development of the app or are you, you know, do you enjoy school? Is it, are you integrating school into your other activities or is school a, a sort of a, a, a burden and a chore that needs to be, you know, kind of a box that needs to be checked? Um, I would say in many ways, school is actually what inspired me to create this specific app and what helped me come up with the different features that I wanted to implement because um, obviously being surrounded by peers who are young and who are just coming of age and about to, you know, start voting in the next couple elections, I really saw the different um, gaps in the formal education system um, as far as, you know, just shoving a textbook in your face and saying, hey, read this and somehow expecting students to find that engaging. And so I guess I wanted to address that with our Civically app by providing something that could still maintain the richness of the content and convey really strong, good information, but at the same time be much easier to decipher and more fun to, to learn. Okay. Uh, well, we're going to – first thing we'll do after the show is download the app, and uh, we'll, we'll get going. And um I, Chris uh, Alfano from Burn Burton Academy, it's a pleasure to chat with you. Uh, tell us again where we can get the app and how we can download. Yeah, so you can get the app. Either you can go straight to the App Store on your Apple device and search Civically, so Civic, L-Y, Civically, or you can go to civicallyapp.org slash download. Okay. Chris, it's a pleasure to talk to you, and thank you for joining us. We appreciate it. Awesome. Thanks so much. I hope you have a great day. Welcome back. I'm Kevin Ellis. It's Vermont Viewpoint. And for the next couple of minutes, we're reviewing the news and taking your calls 
Um, I want to point your attention to a few things. I noticed a long feature story in VT Digger this week uh, about Senator Dick Mazza. Uh, it turns out that you get a little bit down in the story, and it turns out that Senator Mazza has pancreatic cancer. Uh, that is worth taking uh, a moment to consider the career of Senator Mazza. I've known the guy for a long, long time. Uh, and uh, as word got out last week, I'm reading the lead of the story. As word got out uh, last week that Senator Mazza had returned to the Vermont Statehouse, a steady stream of friends and colleagues ducked into the first floor committee room. He has occupied for the better part of four decades telling familiar jokes, dispensing hugs, and wishing wishing him well. He said, Mazza said, it's like home here, uh, with a laugh, like home. So good article by Paul Heinz, uh, the editor-in-chief of, of VT Digger. Mazza is 84. He has been in the legislature for 40 years. He served, I believe, I'm going off the top of my head here, one term in the House, but he has been the chair of the Senate Transportation Committee in the Senate for a long time. Uh, last fall, uh, he was diagnosed with the cancer. Then he fell and broke a hip, uh, and he took a tumble in the state house, injuring his knee. So he's using a walker to get around. Uh, the hair is uh, gone, but as uh, Heinz writes in his story, Mazza retains the mischievous smile and easy laugh that have long won him friends in the halls of Statehouse. As a reminder to those who don't know Dick Mazza, uh, he runs Dick Mazza's general store in, I call it Mallets Bay. Uh, it's technically, I guess, in Colchester, but, uh, and he has served uh, the people of that community out of that store and his back office for uh, generations. Famously, Mazza has a, a, a few uh classic cars in the back garage. Uh, he's got a dumpy little office where he meets with people. Uh, I remember going into that office uh, many years ago with former Burlington mayor, Peter Clavel, to talk about, to talk to Mazza about supporting what was then the uh, proposal to uh, build the Macy's department store in the Burlington square mall, uh, right off of church street. Um, and, and boy, I'll tell you, uh, sitting with Mazza at, in the back office of his uh, general store was really an experience. He drives, I'm going to get the make and model wrong. He drives a big car. It's either a Cadillac or something else. And whenever you're hanging around Mazza, whether you're in a hotel or a restaurant or whatever, he doesn't really carry a wallet. He just carries one of those old-fashioned billfolds. Um, and there's some great details in this story about Mazza. Uh, turns out, even though he ser out of his grocery store, he serves the sort of Mallets Bay, Colchester uh, boating community and summer community. He uh, is only been on the water one time. And that, uh, because uh, according to the article, he doesn't know how to swim. Uh, and so... He has been, I'm going to scroll down in this story, he has been uh, on the water one time, and that is uh, on a little uh, boat owned by uh, the current governor, Phil Scott, who uh, dragged him out of the out onto the water 
uh, one time, uh, sort of against Maza's will. Um, turns out that Maza and the governor are close, close friends. Uh, I remember watching when Phil Scott first came to the legislature as a senator from Washington County um, and then became lieutenant governor. Uh, when he was a senator, uh, Governor Scott was on the Transportation Committee and on the Institutions Committee. I believe he shared it. And uh, so they would – when you're on the Senate Transportation Committee, you are a group of people that decides uh, what roads get paved, what bridges get maintained and built, um, uh, how much salt is used on the roads, how much salt is not used on the roads. Um, and Mazza and Phil Scott became close, close friends. I forgot to mention culverts, by the way. You're dealing with plow. I'm going to read this uh, this quote from Mazza. You're dealing with culverts. You're dealing with plowing. You're dealing with salt. You're dealing with the things that I can relate to. Um, and uh, Phil Scott and and Mazza really have become like brothers. Um, they you know, they they are the first phone call to each. And not just Phil Scott. Uh, Howard Dean uh, and Peter Shumlin, and I suspect uh, Jim Douglas, although I don't know from personal experience, all relied on uh, Dick Mazza's uh, counsel. Um, why? Well, because Dick Mazza is a, what they call a moderate Democrat. And I see that uh, Jane Kitchell, the chair of the Appropriations Committee, is is in the in the article talking about being a moderate Democrat, and uh, and and Howard Dean, Jim Douglas, Peter Shumlin, and now Phil Scott depend on a guy like Mazza because he talks to voters every day at his store. Mazza still, after all these years, and his son is quoted in the story as um, as saying that. He he doesn't think his father's ever taken a day off from from the store. Uh, it's 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 politics and the grocery store. And Mazza's not sitting in the back counting the money. He's uh, well, he's doing that, but he's also stocking the shelves, and he's in there very early in the morning. Um, his uh, I'll, I'll, I'll never forget Mazza sitting in a in a committee hearing once where uh, the technology people from the Scott administration were trying to explain the millions of dollars they needed to redo the Department of Motor Vehicles computer system. And it was going to cost millions of dollars. And Mazza, who is a grocery store guy, just looked at them and said, uh, you know, I can't believe the amount of money you people spend. Uh, you'd never make it in my grocery store. <laughs> so, um, it's, it's really quite something. Uh, Howard Dean is quoted in this article. Uh, you know, it's as as visiting Mazza in the store. Any everybody who needs anything, whether it's a state official like a governor uh, or a local person, is always uh, welcome to go into Dick's uh, back office and talk about it um, uh, with Dick and 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 go over it. Uh, I remember back, and this is this is detailed in the story, way back in 2000 when Vermont was um, struggling with, back then it was a big deal, the civil union law. 
uh, giving gays and lesbians the, the right to get a civil union. This was 10 years or so before we did uh, marriage equality, full marriage equality. Um, back then, we created a new a new label called civil unions. Uh, Dick Mads is a Catholic, and he got a call from the bishop um, and a meeting was held with Mazza, Peter Shumlin, uh, Bennington Senator Dick Sears, and other legislators in which the bishop tried to persuade them to scuttle uh, the civil unions bill. Um, it didn't work. The bill passed, uh, and Dick Mazza ultimately voted in favor of civil unions. And I, that, that, the article uh, brought that back to me. Uh, and here's a quote from Dick Sears, uh, who is, uh, I would say, something of a moderate Democrat. He, he's quoted as saying, I thought, what courage did Dick Mazza have meeting with a bishop of his own church? It was something I'll never forget. And that's the type of guy Dick Mazza is. So uh, Dick Mazza openly struggling with pancreatic cancer, but he is still serving, showing up every day. Um, and uh, that's... Uh, Something to be said for that. Another uh, another piece before we take a break and uh, prepare for our uh, conversation with Bob Nay. The uh, Dog River Trio and Jewish Voice for Peace chapter of Vermont and New Hampshire is presenting a benefit performance, and this is way out of my uh, way above my pay grade here of Pergolesi's Stabat Matter. Uh, for the Children of Gaza on Sunday, February 18th at 3 p.m. at the United Church of Northfield, 58 South Main Street. Now you ask, what is the Dog River Trio? The Dog River Trio is a, is a, is a trio of opera singers. Uh, and uh, my friend uh, Nessa Rabin is a mezzo-soprano. And uh, I tried to get her on the show today. It didn't work out. So I promised her that uh, we would discuss and tell everybody about this performance. The Dog River Trio is Lillian Broderick, a soprano, Nessa Rabin, a mezzo-soprano, and Allison Bruce Cerruti at the piano. Uh, all donations from this performance will go directly to um, an organization that's delivering the Middle East Children's Alliance and uh, to deliver desperately needed humanitarian aid to the children of Gaza. Um, so that, if you want to see Nessa Rabin, the reason I know Nessa Rabin is that she is a, uh, she works at the Hunger Mountain Co-op. And if you want to get advice on the best wine or beer uh, to take home with you, Nessa Rabin is the, is the person to do it. She is also the daughter of Jules Rabin, who is the uh, is the guy behind the best bread in town, or among the best bread in town? Um, Jules is still at the bread making business in downtown uh, Montpelier, and his daughter, mezzo soprano Nessa Rabin, uh, the part of the Dog River Trio, uh, a benefit performance of Pergolesi's Stabat Mater for the Children of Gaza. It's this Sunday, February 18th, 3 p.m. at the United Church of Northfield, uh, 58 South Main Street. Uh, one more thing, and we'll get to this with uh, Bob May in just a minute. Uh, the the death of the uh, 
Mr. Navalny, the 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 active, the anti-Putin activist in Russia, just announced today. I boy, this really harkens back to the bad old days of the of the Cold War. You know, suddenly uh, a prisoner of conscience, Alexei Navalny, is found dead in the prison grounds of the uh, of a penal colony in, in the Arctic uh, region of Russia. Uh, and uh, no explanation, of course, from the Russian government. I, 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 Alexei Navalny is an amazing guy for many reasons, but I couldn't believe that he – this is a guy – and we're, we talked a lot about John Lewis today. This is a guy who volunteered to leave the safety of the West to go back to Russia to fight for democracy. Uh, and uh, he must have known what was coming. And today it came. Um, Alexei Navalny is dead today, and it's the lead story in most of the news. We're going to take a break. Uh, we're going to come back with Bob Nay. We're going to talk about Navalny and all this, uh, what it means. Uh, right after this break, we've got lots more coming at you. I'm Kevin Ellis. It's Vermont Viewpoint, and you're listening to WDEV. WDEV. 